You're listening to Tara Lynn's A Geek Saga podcast. This episode features audio from a discussion panel that was recorded at DragonCon 2018. Okay, so we are going to get started. Um, Hopefully you guys are here for the Join the Resistance panel. Uh, Yes, right? (laughs) Just, if you're not, well... Hopefully you'll enjoy it anyway. Um, My name is Tara, I'm the moderator today. And uh, so the way I usually run these things, I will let, I will introduce myself, I will let our uh, other panelists introduce themselves and we'll kind of get the discussion going. But I really do like to hear from the audience. Uh, You guys are kind of the best driver of, of, good conversation in these things. So there is a mic uh, right out there in the middle of the room. Um, we ask that if you know you can, you please use the mic because uh, you know just that way everybody will be able to hear you in the back. Um, so my name is Tara. I am an author uh, and I also run conventions myself. I've got two novels out uh, under the pen name T.L. Walker, and I founded and organized uh, Ice and Firecom, which is a Game of Thrones convention. And uh, I guess we will start at the end here. Let me make sure I've got everybody's. Richard. Start with Richard, and we'll go down the line. You guys introduce yourselves. Hi, I'm Richard Cadry. Uh, I write the Sandman Slim series and do comics. Uh, I've done on Lucifer, Hellblazer, and uh, written for Heavy Metal. <laughs> I'm, I'm Ben Fisher. I uh, also uh, write prose and comics. Um, the, uh, I'm currently writing a post-apocalypse series um, of, of comics and have a, a new apocalypse series-ish coming out at the beginning of next year. So that's why I'm here. Hi, I'm C.D. Lee. I'm the author of the Sidekick Squad series. It's about a group of queer teens who take on a corrupt government in a kind of a quasi-post-dystopia world. And um, I'm also getting into comics. I'm the I'm going to be writing the new Ben Ten uh, graphic novels, which will be starting to come out next year. And I'm F.T. Lukens. I write queer YA sci-fi and urban fantasy novels. And my um, so my space opera, space opera trilogy um, is coming to its conclusion in October. Okay, so <laughs> so the, the, the panel description for this um, is basically we are going to talk about dystopian stories. Um, you know, one, one of the things that's mentioned in the panel description was Star Wars, but there are uh, clearly so many different stories out there that are set in these dystopian eras um, that feature, you know, Obviously, with a dystopian tale, um, a corrupt government is definitely a big part of that, usually. Um, And of course, (coughs) sorry, guys, it's only Friday. Uh, um, But, you know, and and what that usually leads to is there being uh, a resistance or, you know, basically people fighting against these, you know, corrupt regimes. And of course, they're usually like the rebels, you know, scrappy good guys. But what, um, I guess my question for you guys is, what, uh, have you guys all written about dystopian futures? Or do you have some sort of specific uh, tale, like a resistance tale in your own work? Or do you have a specific favorite of, in like popular media? Well, my first novel uh, is a cyberpunk novel called Metrophage. And it's, pretty dystopian in that it's about 
25 years from now, um, it's actually about a drug dealer um, who used to be a cop in a rather dystopian society. And it's not it is about a resistance, but only in um, almost a tangential way. I mean, it's about ordinary people who are just trying to live their lives and get stumble into a resistance and through course of the novel um, end up working with them but, but almost but also resisting them at the same time because most people don't want to be heroes most people just want to have breakfast you know and have a, a warm place to sleep and that's kind of the approach I was taking to dystopia is people dragged into being part of any resistance because I think that's for me, I think that's more how the world works. So I wasn't sure, if, you know, starting out, I kind of set upon, oh, I'm going to tell an adventure story. And I realized that, you know, my existence, my identity, who I am is kind of inherently political. I can't escape that as a queer woman of color. You know, everything I do, everything, every, every, how people see me is always going to be, you know, based on that. And I kind of, when I started writing out my series, at first I was like, oh, okay, I'm just going to write like a fun series kind of with characters in which I wanted to see characters like myself. Um, and then it turned into more where, you know, where I was writing the work that I wanted to see, but also it was, um, you know, a piece of work, you know, especially now that I felt was becoming more and more, um, like my voice was becoming more and more um, visible within not only this fictional resistance movement within my own book, but you know, giving voice to characters who normally, so the first in the series is called Not Your Sidekick. Um, and that was kind of a play on having, you know, usually characters of color or queer characters are kind of relegated to that supporting role or the background or killed off. And I wanted to have stories where they were the main characters. And the fact that there was a resistance within the story um, was kind of fun because it was, you know, these kids are like, hey, we, we discovered this corrupt thing, we're going to find the, the resistance. And basically they go on this quest to find it and it turns out like they find what they think is the resistance, but it's a group of like Star Wars nerds who like camp out and watch these banned movies because in this post dystopian we're like, you know. But anyways, so then realizing that they have to like start their own movement and it's interesting because all they know is like, you know, all these movies and such. So it's kind of their adventure, and um, that's kind of where I was coming from and where I'm going to go with the series. Um, my series is called the Broken Moon series, and it's about um, a group of folks that it's kind of a Firefly Star Wars mashup. So both of those series, of course, have a resistance built in, um, and I've always been drawn to that kind of media. So the, in my work, as CB was saying, as a queer woman, um, existence is resistance a lot of times in dystopian futures. So I wanted to make sure that when I wrote um, the story across these three books, um, that I made sure that my marginalized characters were the characters that were the, the center and the forefront. Um, and just, you know, as Richard said, that these folks, they weren't out looking to be heroes, it just kind of fell into it, um, which I do think is, you know, if it were a dystopia right now, I would not go and play the hero, but, you know, I have three kids, and it might be that I have to do something, 
um, to protect my children. So I think a lot of the dystopian stories kind of fall into that. I think um, the 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 comment about you know not you know people don't really necessarily set out to or even want to be heroes. Um, there's a lot more Hans out there than there are Lukes, you know. <laughs> um, a lot of Landos. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So uh, I write a, a comic series called Great Divide, which is about a world where all skin contact has become deadly. Uh, so the dystopia is obviously sort of stems from that particular uh, that moment. And so the, there's a resistance, but in, in my case, I sort of did it two-pronged. The, there's the typical trope that you would find in, in a lot of these dystopia-type stories, which is the, our hero doesn't really want to be a hero. It sort of stumbles into a resistance, which is part of the story. Um, but there's, I, I try to do a sort of a secondary thread through where there's, there's a resistance against just sort of the concept of giving up in general of, well, if we can't, there's really procreations mostly off the table, really most intimacy as we would typically define it has, has kind of come off the table. And so what does that mean to survive is even worth surviving. And so part of the resistance is not so much a picking up weapons and fighting, although there is that, but part of it is just finding a, a resisting that urge and, and coming to terms with the concept that maybe there's, there's reason to move on besides those particular points. And so that's part of the resistance thread as well. I think what's interesting is, especially within dystopian fiction, is that very often the work itself seeks to examine what is wrong with our society and how, how you know, whether it's taking it to an extreme where we can actually have this discussion. But, you know, it's, I, I love how within fiction we're able to examine, you know, a lot of issues, whether it's social, cultural, economic issues that, you know, we can really talk about in our novels, what, you know, in this fictional sense, but that, you know, that can be our own form of, you know, getting other people to learn about those issues in a fun, adventurous way. <laughs> Um, one of the things that I wanted to touch on is the idea um, within these sort of corrupt regimes that the the way they usually there's a key point in taking them down and it often it involves someone on the inside who was at least once uh, kind of behind what all was going on. So what do you guys think about the sort of that 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 aspect? You know, that person might not be the main character or the hero, but it usually you know, there's that, they're usually playing a big part in, you know, the resistance actually succeeding. Yeah, well, in my, my elementary phase, I said that the protagonist used to be a cop, and that's sort of his in um, to create uh, some of the chaos is that uh, he was part of the system for a long time, was a bad person. I mean, he's a, he's, he's a quote, bad person now because he's a drug dealer, but part of dealing the drugs and the world he lives in is part of a big go to hell to the government. And um, part of the story is, is him being dragged into the police department because he is, he is a dealer, because he has this background. Um, and he does know, just inherently by being on the outside, he knows people who are part of the resistance, even though he himself resists them. Uh, and through you know, trying to be turned by the cops, that's that's where his um, heroicism, for for for, uh, for lack of a better word, comes from. That he 
he knows his back is against the wall. And again, I think that's where most people find their courage. And especially if your back is against the wall by the prevailing power, power group in the, in the land, that it inspires um, even more resistance than if it was just, again, against the cops versus against the federal government. Um, Local cops are less scary than the feds, inherently, um, even though local cops can be scary. But the feds can bring down the wrath of God on you. And I think that's a big, a big changing point for some of the people I know and for some of the people in this book. And I, I was basing it on some people I knew, some of the uh, more resistant parts of it, and how they approach resistance, um, whether it's something grim or whether it's something that they can find joy in. One of the resistance groups was based on the student riots in Paris in 68. And they took a lot of their symbolism from the surrealists of the 30s. So the government couldn't really co-opt their slogans. The way you see um, people like Alex Jones and Fox Media co-opting a lot of resistance now, the way Paris 68 came at it through surrealist actions, through, through surrealist slogans, it was hard to have those taken away by the power structure because they were so absurd um, inherently. But because of that, they were codes to the people who agreed with them. And they were able to use them to make contact and to push people forward. So. Yeah, I, I would guess that uh, the, the idea of a man on the inside, a woman on the inside who has some knowledge about what caused the dystopia or the inner workings that's heading the dystopia, is a, it's a pretty common trope that we've probably all used here. You could probably come up with a hundred examples from Finn in current Star Wars to as far back as you want. And from a writing perspective, it's a useful storytelling mechanism because it allows you to, to explain to your protagonists what's actually going on behind the curtains. So I, I think you see that a lot um, if for that reason, if, if for no other reason, then it, it just is a useful tool for telling your story. Um, I have a, the, a series coming out beginning of next year. I can't say too much about it because I'm not supposed to announce it yet. But one of the, one of the tropes that I played with was that exact concept where I've got four or five different groups of protagonists, all of which are sort of believe they've got a person on the inside and are rising up against the dystopia, but the, the sort of twist is they all have a different idea of what the dystopia is, an entirely different concept, and so they're all fighting the power, but none of them are fighting the same power. They all think that they're fighting, and so I sort of play off the idea that none of them are actually correct, or maybe they are, and it sort of depends as it plays out. But, but that trope, I think, is we could probably all come up with a lot of examples of that. Yeah, that sounds awesome. I think there's a lot of power in those in the story where you can unpack kind of that ideology of, um, you know, why was someone in this organization to begin with? Was it something that they always just accepted or something that they grew up with? Or, um, and then, you know, maybe they were just, didn't know of an alternative way, or maybe they, they had questioned it. And there's, it's, you know, Finn is one of my favorite stories from um, the current Star Wars movies, because he, you know, he grew up with the First Order. And it's really fascinating to see like, you know, inherently, you know, that moment of choice when he's like, I don't want to hurt these people. And then, you know, that's, you get to see his character devolve and that's, that's one of my most favorite stories currently, but. Yeah, I think my favorite example of that trope 
um, is actually Rogue One um, and Jyn Erso's dad um, because not only did it fix a really long plot hole that, um, <laughs> within the Star Wars universe for a very long time, uh, but it's just a great story and it's maybe blasphemy, but Rogue One's my favorite of the Star Wars um, movies. And uh, <laughs> 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 but but having that guy on the inside for the exhaust port, um, that yeah. I mean, we can all think of more examples of that, but I, that's the one that sticks out to me. But what about people who, so many people I knew who ended up as cops and prison guards. It was something that they did and they didn't think about because that was the world they grew up in. People like, people who end up working in prisons often come from little towns around prisons. And they're basically, the jobs are, you run the 7-Eleven where the prison guards come or you're one of the prison guards who goes to the 7-Eleven. And a lot of those towns, that's it. And if you grew up in, in that culture, um, if there's no, if you weren't the greatest kid in school, if your parents push you in a certain direction, you end up in a certain life. And uh, to make that step out of that life um, can, can be um, seeing, seeing that one thing that pushes you out of it, that suddenly wakes you up from your sleep and makes you suddenly go, I can't do this anymore. You know, or why, not only why, you know, I can't do this, why was I doing it in the first place? Other than I was kind of asleep and I've been asleep my whole life. Yeah, and it's a really interesting conversation to have, especially when you bring that up where it's, you know, they didn't necessarily know a life outside of it. Yeah. And when you think like, a person isn't inherently evil, you know, you, you know, if they're in an organization that's basically the evil league of evil, um, and, you know, what if henchman number seven, it, you know, that he didn't know there was an alternative and that's all that he knew. And it's really um, interesting to see, like, if, you know, why was every stormtrooper, you know, what was, maybe that's the equivalent of like, oh, hey, you know, they're going to feed me three square meals a day and um, I'm not really going to question what the Empire's doing, but, you know, um, and it's really interesting to see that we get, you know, as we kind of flesh these stories out and look behind the curtains. That's one of the things I love about your series. You want to talk a little bit more about that? It's <laughs> <laughs> one of my favorite books. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for putting me on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> They're great books. You can get them here in <laughs> And I do have the third book here, even though it's not out yet. Um, only 10 copies exist. Um, so one of the characters in, in my series um, enlisted in the Phoenix Corps, which is the military organization. And I kind of actually based it off my husband who enlisted in, in the Navy and didn't know what he was doing and left and ended up on a submarine for six years. Um, so this character uh, enlists to get away from um, his home life and he ends up in this big military organization um, and he becomes my cruise guy on the inside. Uh, and in his own ways, finds out what's going on behind the curtain, um, and all the things that are, are going wrong um, within the military complex in this world, uh, and then goes AWOL and meets up with a crew on a ship. So um, that, that is his resistance. He's, he's a lot like Finn. Uh, he was written before Finn existed. Uh, just putting that out there. Um, <laughs> But uh, yeah, he, he goes AWOL and um, ends up with this crew and is uh, the, the reason how they know how that 
part of the world works. Um, <clears throat> one of the one of the things that uh, was that I really liked about this particular panel is the idea of uh, how much dystopian media like exists and how it's it's tends to be very well received and why 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 do you guys think that like it does it challenges the way we think and to be honest not oh not everybody wants to be challenged in the way they think is is kind of you know my experience but despite that people still just really love this genre and there's so much of it out there so why why do you guys think um, you know, people, you know, keep coming back to these tales. <laughs> the, I, the, I think there's two reasons, at least off the top of my head. Um, you know, the first is for those of us who see the current world and see problems with it, the a, dysto a, a well-written dystopia usually takes one or more of those problems and then you know pushes it to the uh, to an extreme, and sometimes that's a, a useful tool to 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 point out the existing problems right by making it more obvious and more pronounced. And in uh, in that sense, I feel like it's a it's a a medium that's going to always last because there's always going to be some problems that we're going to want highlighted for for audience members. Um, and the second is. Um, is a little more crass than that, but I, I at least in the, especially in the YA uh, uh, field, there's always going to be the the younger audience who wants to rebel against parents and teachers. That that concept it's built into all of us. We all have those. We still have those feelings, but, but they're especially pronounced at a, at a certain age. And a lot of those dystopian tales, I mean, that's what they're about, right? They're about there's this authority that's holding you back, and you're different than that authority. And if, they, if you could just break free from whatever is substituting for parents or teachers or whatever in that particular story, then, then your true potential would be seen. And that's, that's an evergreen story that's always going to resonate with, with a certain, certain age. So. Well, and I think for some, for YA, um, a lot of our readership feels powerless. Um, in uh, the world events that are going on right now. Um, they don't know what, how to get involved in what they can do. And, and reading these uh, novels where you have someone rise up and you have um, maybe a chosen one, if you want to go that route, um, and it gives the, the reader power. Um, and they can affect change in their own ways by getting into these worlds and reading these types of stories. Um, so it's, it's about that point where I like to open up the floor for questions, if anybody has them. If not, we will just keep talking. But if you have a question, please uh, feel free to approach the mic. And if, if we're chatting, um, you know, I, I will wait. Uh, I'll, I'll call on you as soon as, as, soon as we are done. But um, yeah, let us know if you have questions or anything about these authors' works, or if you just have something to say about dystopian uh, stories. Um, but other than that, uh, so you were, you were talking about Rogue One. I did want to say, if you haven't read the like, prequel book to Rogue One, it actually, like, I liked the movie, but like, the, reading that prequel book gives you so much more of that backstory. Um, and, and it's Rebel Rising by Beth Brennan. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's very, it's very good. It's very good. Um, and, and that kind of also br easily brings us into, oh, you have a question. All right. No, go ahead, go ahead. 
Okay, thanks, Kevin. So when you are creating like the setting for your fiction, how do you keep, obviously you want the government to be corrupt and the society to be dystopian, but how do you keep it so that there's still, the, like it's still tied and some realism so that it's not, okay, this obviously could never happen if here kind of thing. So not to be real, but also still be dystopian. How do you keep that balance, I guess? I have superpowers in my book. <laughs> um, but it's I, I feel it's a great question because a lot of the things that I thought would never happen have happened mm -hmm. and it's terrifying just to see how much dystopian fiction was it a warning like was it or was it a blueprint you know were, were people looking at it as um, and seeing different ways that we you know looking at what um, pieces of fiction really are most recently kind of coming back like 1984 Fahrenheit 51 and these classics like The Handmaid's Tale just coming back that were written, you know, decades ago, but they're still, the issues are still relevant. And um, kind of, I feel like that's up to you as a writer, what, how much realism you want and how much fiction you want. Um, for me personally, uh, I wanted my series always to have that touch of hope. And so when I say post-dystopia, I mean, it's it takes, uh, my series takes place about 100 years after kind of a, um, a number of disasters, World War III, the countries all collapse, all this stuff. Um, and so it is kind of taking place in a world where um, everyone's kind of rebuilding themselves. So most kind of post-apocalyptic dystopian stories take place during the disasters and when everything's going terrible. Um, and so the issues that I wanted, I wanted to see hopeful things like people dealing with clean energy, um, they're solving for poverty, they're solving for um, their, Everyone in their um, in these cities have like really good healthcare and like the weird thing that's going on, the corrupt thing is it has to do with the superpowers and the superheroes and villains and stuff. But I wanted to see kind of society moving forward within my own dystopia. But it's you know that was my choice and what's like what 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 realism do I want? What what fictional things do I want to aspire to? Just read the newspaper, man. Read. <laughs> And don't read the same things. Don't read the easy stuff. Go look for publications that aren't... Don't just watch CNN. Don't just read the New York Times. Look for publications from small groups, groups with a, with a, with a point of view. Um, you were mentioning existence is resistance, that uh, thing. There are publications, there are websites dedicated to news that affects different groups that aren't the prevailing... Um, you know, the prevailing power structures and ask questions when you're going through those things and, and just push it a little further. Handmaid's Tale is perfect example of the world right now. We have Mike Pence. Sorry if there are any Trump people here. We have Mike Pence in power right now. We're one inch from the Handmaid's Tale. Yeah. You know? Yeah, and, and really, look at things and look how things, another dystopian thing is how the world is co-opted, how the resistance is co-opted. Some of you might be resistors and you run around in V for Vendetta masks. How many people have those? Anybody? Okay. Those are made in sweatshops. You know that? I have photos. If you want to see V for Vendetta masks be, being made by child labor, I have photos here. It's that kind of co-opting things by sort of late capitalist structures that you have to question. And, and our perfect 
perfect ways to bring the world in if that's what you want. And I'll dovetail on a little bit of what you were saying. And by the way, her Not Your Psychic series is amazing. You should definitely buy that book if you haven't. But, uh, the, uh, but to sort of dovetail with that a little bit on the craft side, you were asking about like how do you know if you sort of reach a point where it's not possible. Uh, at least for me, when I'm working on a, any sort of futuristic type story, whether that's dystopian or otherwise, I, 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 whatever extreme I want to push – I push to as far as I can push to where I, I think, well, now it's starting to – doesn't really make sense if, if I can extrapolate any further. And that's where the fiction part I, – I just come up with a, a frame that then allows that to be possible, whether that's superpowers or people can't touch. Whatever that is, that's where I start to insert – I mean, in other words, you fix it yourself, right? You decide, okay, it would not be plausible for for X to be pushed any further unless they could fly. Okay, well, maybe in whatever your situation is – and from a, from a writing perspective, I think that's just part of the craft is figuring out how much of your fiction you want to build in to push it to whatever extreme you want it to go to for your readership. And I think that you can um, – my, my series is a YA in space. But I think you can push your world building and, and your dystopia as far as you want as long as you have characters that remain human and grounded and um, you can keep – you can have all the big level stuff going on um, that could seem extreme or, or seem kind of out of this world or in space or whatever, but as long as you have characters that are um, well-rounded and responding to these types of things the way people would respond, um, then I think you're going to find your, your reader grounded in though that. And maybe your world building can be as expansive or as, or as apocalyptic as you want, but as long as you have those characters um, in there that people can relate to, that's going to be the, the, the craft of the writing. I think, um, and th there's also a lot of, <clears throat> there's also a lot of dystopian uh, worlds where there's a war, and the world is the way it, it is because of the war. With Handmaid's Tale, um, you know, they're a whole huge portion of the United States is, is like wasteland. Um, and, you know, they still have these little areas where people can live, but the world was created by the people who wanted it to be that way. Like they, they caused the, the, the sort of nuclear uh, war that, that made the world the way it was because they wanted to have that existence where it's like everything's run by these men and, and they have their wives and they have their concubines, essentially. Um, and then with Hunger Games, we don't get the why or how of the war that you know created that world but there was a world war three type situation and now you're you know it's late enough in the in the timeline where what whatever was destroyed most of it has kind of regrown and everything so you it it's still like you're walking into the united states and everything looks the way it did because we're so far past when they actually had you know that nuclear war but then you also have like mad max where i and to be fair to be honest i don't know a ton of the backstory on mad max but like you know they're they're living in this desert wasteland um and they're you know the, with water being the most important commodity and everything so there always seem it's not every single time but like there seems to be uh you know there was a war and it changed things and whether or not the world is physically fine or not uh, it, it, it does. It's a very common, you know, trope with with dystopian tales. So there's always that. <laughs>
Hello. Uh, just a question for anybody that wants to answer. Do you have a preference for a kind of dystopia, whether it be military, government, maybe religious, natural disaster, uh, you know, whatever can oppress, because it doesn't just have to be a war. You know, it could be economic dystopia, class warfare, or whatever. You know, you all have a kind of something you draw uh, inspiration from on that. Now, I'll take my seat for the next person. <laughs> Anybody? Uh, I, I, mine would not be war only because I feel like it's, it just doesn't, it doesn't resonate with me as well. I mean, there are amazing stories, including all the ones you just listed that, <laughs> that, that come out of that, but it, for whatever reason, just doesn't work for me as a writer. So I, I tend to do something different. You know, Great Divide is about, you know, just, there's no war. It's just all of a sudden nobody can touch and a lot of people die right away because of that. Um, and then I couldn't decide, so for the one I have coming out next year, it's a whole lot of different ones, but war is necessarily on the table. Um, so I, I, I tend to like the, for me, I tend to like the, the dystopias based off of just one little weird tweak that then changed everything, what, whatever that happens to be, a virus, uh, whatever, the, whatever that particular cause was, um, just something a little bit different. But again, there's been a ton of great ones that stem from war, so that one certainly works. Don't forget climate change. I think that's mm -hmm. becoming more and more important in science fiction and fantasy. It's, it's, it's not a sexy, quick one, you know, um, but it's, I think it's one of those themes that needs to be in uh, the stuff we're writing right now and it's kind of neglected because it's not sexy like a war. Mm -hmm. It's just, um, it's like, hey, we can't breathe and, uh, <laughs> you know, Bob's summer house is underwater now. <laughs> it seems almost banal, but those little banalities start to add up to do very bad stuff. Well, and over time, uh, with climate change, like we as as humans are, you know, we're going to evolve along with it, you know, to handle it better. I think um, so. That that in and of itself, you're, like you said, it's it's kind of it would be much more long and drawn out in terms of like getting to the point of the dystopian future. But the climate change itself, the world is changing, but it's going to change us too. Particularly have a favorite type of I, I all these stories are fascinating, but I, I do love the focus kind of on the rebuilding process because you mm -hmm. know we, you read all these stories like okay the Walking Dead all these zombies are like what what do you do how do you reform your community like that's the part that's most interesting to me about the people and um, do you remember the show Jericho mm -hmm. and I love that show because it was it was so great because it was about this town filled with people and as they were discovering other people who survived this like, you know, really this nuclear event, um, you know, it was kind of, it was about rebuilding a country and how do you, how do you do that? And that's, that's the aspect that I, I think is the fa most fascinating thing about dystopias because you get to see people, humanity, you know, at its best, at its worst, and how, how we come together as people. Um, I, yeah, I don't have a, a real favorite um, <coughs> way that I want the, us to fall into a dystopia. Um, but one that we haven't talked about, I haven't mentioned, is like a pandemic. Um, you know, uh, like The Stand, um, Stephen King's The Stand, um, or uh, The Maze Runner, those kinds of novels where, um, you know, half the population gets wiped out or becomes a zombie. Um, zombies are my least favorite because I'm terrified of zombies. <laughs> terrified. So. Um, if I have a least favorite, it would be a zombie apocalypse. Um, but those, that's just something we hadn't mentioned yet. But uh, you know, 
I think that we see a lot more of the kind of war and political government, the political dystopians, but there's always room for more fun ones like climate change. <laughs> Uh, so I, I came in a few minutes late, so if you've already addressed this, please forgive me. Um, but did you guys address um, the tension between dystopia and utopia? Um, and sometimes how the creation of a dystopia is intended to be a kind of utopian response to whatever event has occurred. Um, so do you guys have any thoughts about utopias and, and even add to that why they are um, <laughs> less popular, perhaps, <laughs> uh, than the dystopia. I mean, a lot of times, um, not obviously not every dystopian tale, but a lot of a lot of them, you know, there is a utopia that exists, but it's just for a select group of people. So <laughs> that's, that's what I'm going to say about that. Or that a lot of societies that are like, hey, we're a utopia, everything is awesome, but it is a mask. It's a veneer where it's not actually, and where these, you know, you grow up thinking, you know, you live in a society where you think everything is great, but it isn't, and you know, the apple is rotten on the inside. And that's, I don't necessarily know if you can truly separate dystopian fiction from utopian, because they kind of, they're like partners, they complement each other. When you think about most dystopias are like, hey, we're actually, we're creating this utopia. And then in the utopian fiction, you're like, hey, it's a utopia, but it's actually not. I um, oh no, sorry. I was just gonna say um, one of the series, and I, I don't. This isn't a, an apocalypse rising series. I'm actually not sure what track has it. Uh, the series, the Red Rising books by Pierce Brown, which are like super amazing. Like that is there is this utopian world, but like I said, it's only for a select few, and the books go through um, you know it being overthrown, and uh, then. There's a 10-year break, and in the fourth book, um, you know, it's kind of that they've been trying to build this new utopian society that's perfect for everybody, and it's about that struggle. So, like you said, they, they really do go hand in hand, um, you know, like it's, it's, it's very hard to separate the two. I, I would just add that in terms of, you know, for popularity, you know, between the two, I, I, from a, to just a real base level, you, us sharing a lunch isn't that interesting a story. One of us stealing lunch from somebody else, that's a story, right? So, I mean, in some sense, it's just a question of what's more interesting to read about. And so utopian generally is, you know, the problems are solved, you're done, story's over. Does anybody want to read Handmaid's Tale from the perspective <laughs> of, uh, I don't know, one of, the, one of the guy's names I'm blanking? <laughs> you know, you know. I, I don't think, I, there's something inherently fascist about utopias. I mean, to make a perfect world, there are rules and people who enforce them that are, have to be pretty rigid. I mean, if you've ever been to Singapore, that's a very nice place. It is clean, it is efficient, it is a very pleasant environment. If you drop your gum on the ground, you're gonna get arrested and there are gonna be very harsh penalties. There's something scary about all utopias. Um, and, and fascism, I think, is the connection between the two. Um, one is just more obvious than the other, I think. Dystopia is more obvious. There, you don't have utopian, you know, brown shirts, but you do. <laughs> they just don't wear brown shirts. And it's just, I have a, a recommendation um, or something to read that's kind of utopia versus dystopia. Um, and I had to look up the title because I had forgotten it, but 
Uh, it's an Ursula K. Le Guin short story called The Ones Who Walk Away From Omelas. Omelas. Yeah, yeah. I read that story and it has stayed with me for years. Um, so if you want to read more about that or, or read a story about a utopia that has the rot underneath, that is a great short story to read. Could you repeat that, please? The Ones Who Walk Away From Omelas. O M E L A S. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, go ahead and do your question. So that actually leads into, this whole thing actually leads into what I was going to ask. Um, so I want to know what people's thoughts are about the deep and abiding hesitancy of dystopian literature and dystopian um, discourse to address greed. Um, greed in climate change, greed in pandemics, greed in um, utopias. Um, I'll put that into Omelas too, because I wrote a like a little thing in my own journal about it like six months ago about why has there never even been if you've ever it's it was written forty years ago, so I feel like this is a spoiler, I apologize, it is, but um, you leave. That's why it's called all the way from Omelas. Nobody ever stops and has an uprising. You know, this idea that you have this utopia or you have a war in a dystopian literature, and I apologize if you guys have already addressed this, there's always an element of your upper class, and we have that going on now, right? <laughs> there's always an element of greed in dystopian literature and in our world. And I feel like, maybe I'm wrong, it's something that gets danced around, but nobody ever says, wow, people are really effing greedy. <laughs> I would like to know if you guys have any thoughts on the trend of greed in dystopian everything. It's in Omelas too, where we will greedily have a perfect, beautiful society to, instead of a mediocre to okay society, to, to take this rot for it. Because it's on greed that we're having our feature vendetta masks on sweatshops. It's greed, and nobody ever talks about it. And I'm wondering why won't we just say this is pure greed? Thoughts. Sorry. I mean, I think that it's it's there. So I guess it's whether or not you know authors or, or creators really want to. Do do they have to say it? You know what I mean? I mean, because you do know it's there. So I don't know. What do you guys think? I think it is an inherent theme when you just when you talk about the difference in who has what and who has little, or you know the haves, haves, nots, and you know the like whether it's stated as this is because of greed or not. It's as as a topic. It's, I'd be interested in hearing um, where you see the hesitancy and and where you don't see it or where you do see it because it is it is very interesting. In in my series, I kind of address it where. Uh, people who have powers, um, you can only have, you know, people are rated, you know, by how strong you are, which means how much you can use your power per day. And then the main antagonist is someone who's seeking to prolong that beyond what they can naturally do. And this, by this, it means um, a use of force by taking powers and strength from other people. And that's kind of where greed comes into my own work. Yeah, I, I guess, of course, it depends on the dystopia you're talking about, but I, I feel like it's it's a pretty common theme that 
when you're dealing with a dystopia where with limited resources, which is you know fairly common, whether it's Hunger Games or Mad Max with water or whatever it happens to be, that you know one of the the most prevalent themes is someone is is grabbing up all that's left and then doling it out in pieces to to everyone else to maintain power, and you know that's just a a pretty way of saying greed, I suppose. But that's that's what we're talking about is once you have limited resources and someone's not sharing. That's you know, it's, greed is usually the reason behind it. But um, but I, I don't disagree. It probably is a word that isn't explicitly stated as as much in dystopian literature as it is just sort of described uh, by circumstance. Thank you. That's a good question. Um, I think you just touched on this too, so much to give a sense of power and awareness, particularly to young leaders. But in what ways are your works real calls to action, uh, in other words, what responses do you desire from the audience? That's a good question. Yeah. Register the vote and do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and vote blue. <laughs> uh, it is, it's, yeah, my series, is, it's about a group of kids who are realizing, they're like, what can I do to change this? And it, it comes down to, it's, I guess it's a spoiler, but not really. But there is an upcoming election in my books, which is, you know, and these kids who are 16, 17, they're of that age. And I, I really hope that kids who are reading my books go out there, register to vote, and, and vote. And if you are already registered to vote, check if you are still, because some states are, are doing shady things. <laughs> Theodore Sturgeon, the old science fiction writer, um, had this symbol he created. It's a cue with a little arrow coming off the side. And it stood for ask the next question. And I think that's something that um, we want writers, uh, our, our readers to do, is just not accept what's handed to them by media leaders, whether political or church or whatever. Ask the next question. What does that thing mean? I like that a lot. Mm. Yeah. Ask the next question and, and hold on. Um, yeah. Survive. Um, you know, for queer characters and for um, marginalized groups and stuff, um, you know, holding on and and surviving and, and not giving up. Um, that's what I want my young readers to take away from um, the books that I've written. Um, it, it does get better um, and there will be more opportunities um, as you grow. So, and vote. <laughs> <laughs> and learn, <clears throat> excuse me, learn. <laughs> like learn, you know what I mean? Also, you know, like the asking the next question is you, you, you need to do that in order to learn and everybody like, don't, don't ever just accept where you are, you know, knowledge wise. There's always something more to, to, to understand. Uh, well, thank you for coming out today. Uh, I think in dystopia, it's very easy to show that it is a dystopia with jackfruited stormtroopers or give your children up for the annual Hunger Games. Uh, but one of my favorite subreddits is called A Boring Dystopia. <laughs> the conceit being that we are in one, but it's boring. You know, like, you know, and there's elements for humor there. Uh, as storytellers, how do you transmit kind of the more terrible nature of life when it's not so on the nose, when it's subtle, when it's something like having to watch an ad in order to 
street food or, or, or whatever. Uh, are there mechanisms or areas you focus on or, or certain methods you do to kind of reveal the less than ideal nature of the society in which you're describing? J.G. Ballard, the writer, once said, the future will be boring. <laughs> and I, what he was talking about there is exactly what, you're, what you mean. I mean, we are, you can look at the world right now, especially the United States, we are being pleasanted to death. It's like, stuff's kind of okay for most people. Donald Trump is president, and that's, a lot of people are mad, but a lot of people are like, well, it's just kind of okay. We have a lot of TV, we have food, we have our cars. And if things and rights slowly erode along the way, so, but we still have TV and cars and everything, um, that's a much more subtle kind of dystopia. And uh, I think it's harder to write. I mean, outside of satirical uh, methods, I think that's uh, a bit harder. Uh, Ballard, J.G. Ballard is someone I really recommend who could write about that banal now. In, in a very uh, in a very erudite way. Uh, for me, uh, I, it's a good question, and I try to always infuse uh, good chunks of humor in anything I'm writing, particularly the darker stuff I'm writing, to kind of balance it out. And part of the way that I do that in dystopian type stories is hitting on that. You've got your big obvious reasons why the world sucks, but then there's sort of tangential reasons. As an example, in Great Divide, the obvious you know, can't touch and so the world sucks. But as a result, people act out their, their sexual frustration by putting really bad graffiti, sexual graffiti on everything. And so just one of the kind of crappy parts of the world is wherever you go, someone's drawn some awful, you know, graphic graffiti on the wall. That's boring and silly, but it's a, it's a part of how that world is. And so I try to do stuff like that, kind of infused. I think what Richard said is that we don't realize a lot of like, you know, you don't realize that you might be in a dystopia because things still happen. The day goes on and you have to pay rent, you have to work, you have to pay bills. Um, and these facts of life don't change whether you're, you know, whether I'm signing up for the next resistance and I don't, it, it seems less obvious, I think, because mm -hmm. most people are like, how do I resist in this time and age where I don't have the time to do it, where I feel the fatigue of, I wake up every morning and there's something awful happening and I don't know what to do and we kind of get, there's so much, you get overwhelmed easily and I get overwhelmed by just, there's so much and then you can, I, I do this thing where I kind of shut down where I'm like, well, I can't do anything, I can only, and sometimes it's, it's okay just to be like, hey, you know, for today, my act is just to keep on existing as my thought and that's okay too. Whether, whether you have the opportunity to, you know, you don't have to be like marching in every single march every weekend to be part of the resistance. You don't have to be, you know, do what you can and be aware and ask the questions. And I think, yeah, everyone on this panel has this great suggestions. The, that banality is really interesting because, you know, you don't think that, like, I, I was like, oh, yeah, we live in a dystopia, but I, I forget about it sometimes, which is sad <laughs> to think that I forget about it, because you're like, oh, yeah, you know, um, the electric bill just came in, you got to figure out how to keep the lights on, so. Do you have another question? Uh, um, <laughs> a comment before my question. If you really are interested in reading about climate change dystopias, Jeff Vanderbeer is one of the best authors out there doing that right now. Yeah. Uh, and if you're looking for that type of literature, it's called Anthropocene literature. 
But um, the question I have is, do you see a material difference between dystopias where the powers that be are inherently forward-looking or backward-looking? Where they're locating their goal either in restoring some sort of ideal state in the past, as most fascist movements tend to do, or they're attempting to build or construct a society that has never existed before and like fits some sort of ideal vision that they're hmm. working on. Oh, what do you think? That's a great question. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> really. You struck us dumb. <laughs> I feel like we see a lot of on both sides, you know, whether um, in real life or in fiction, there's always going to be someone who's like, "Hey, let's let's go back to the good old days." Mm -hmm. But you know, for many people, they were never the good old days. Those you know people on who always were in power may not realize that. I'm trying to think of a a, a, utop a modern utopia where they try to build a future that had nothing to do with the past. Most of that I can think of had some connection to what you just said, an idealized past, but creating it in a new way. I can't think of it. Uh, do you have any examples? The communism versus fascism. Yeah. Basic income, Like, um... In Star Wars, the Empire is not looking back to the past to restore something right. that used to exist. They're attempting to create something that has not existed in their universe. And they're looking, you know, it's kind of a forward-looking dystopia in every way because it's like fascist, but also they're locating the ideal state of their government in a future in which all resistance has been crushed. I think probably Hunger Games counts too. I don't, we don't really get all that much information about what the world was like before, but I think it's, like, I've always taken it as it's, it was our world, you know what I mean? Um, and, and with the capital and everything, it's a super futuristic city. Uh, obviously, there's still that, like, haves and have-nots, but I don't feel like they're looking back at anything. I, I think they're just creating their own obnoxious world. Yeah, but the, <laughs> the Hunger Games is a lot of maintaining. There's no looking back or going forward. It's maintaining that status quo. So. Anybody have any other? Do we have any other? We're, we're, we're getting close to wrapping up. So does anybody, if there's any other questions, we can probably fit like one or two in, um, maybe, depending on how long they are. <laughs> so do any of your books deal with the problem of the true believer? Like in The Handmaid's Tale? the people who are now on Tannis, you see through flashbacks that they saw themselves as a resistance. So how do you, your characters differentiate themselves from the people that they're fighting against? Especially if they use the same tactics for any level of that, like people who do bad things to do good things in the future. I think from a character perspective, it's always really interesting, when, especially when you're writing a villain or an antagonist, because to that person, they, they are the hero of their own story, and you always feel like, how does that person justify their actions? Why are they doing this? It's really interesting, and I, I do have some true believers in my series. It's basically, you know, like the antagonist of the who will stop at nothing to gain absolute power, and that's, that's what they believe is rightful, they rightfully deserve. And it's, it's been interesting just to write characters like that, um, but definitely um, in the works that you mentioned, it's um, it brings a lot to. Do, are, are there true believers? There are. I actually have two true believers in my series. One believes the true believer believes that 
the military government is the best thing ever. The other true believer is the person that believes that they have to th overthrow everything and that'll be the best thing ever. And then I have my main characters are falling between those two forces. Um, so my resistance um, main character um, is out to kind of destroy everything. Um, and the other characters are not for that at all. <laughs> um, because they do see that destroying everything is just going to put them even further backward. Um, so there's, it's fun when you're writing because the, they do see themselves as the heroes of their own stories. And I really took that perspective with um, these two true believer characters. They think they're right, everybody else is wrong. But there's a lot of shades of gray in there. Uh, and that's where the main characters of the, of the series fall. For, for Great Divide, it's a similar, uh, similar with two. With society collapsed, you have what's left of the government. In both instances, the true believers really are doing what they think is best. They really do think that they're trying to fix the problem as they see it. Uh, and the government, what's left of it, really is just trying to establish a rule of law again in a pretty lawless area and it, it's using it through show of force but it, it, it thinks it's doing right it thinks that this is the way to establish order again which is necessary and you have a, a, a sort of a rival faction led by a woman who believes that she was that this whole thing was ordained by God and she was put the, the, the world reset on purpose and it's her place to use this as an opportunity to, to recast the world in, in his image as she sees it and both of them 100% believe they're doing the right thing and are doing what's best for the survivors, and they're both awful in their own ways, but uh, they're, neither of them see themselves as evil, certainly. Um, so we're, we're pretty much approaching 3.30, and before we close out, do you guys have anything else you want to add in? Anything? Yeah, if you're here for the rest of the weekend at DragonCon, and you would like to see or purchase my book. <laughs> I also have like bookmarks up here if you want to pick them up and take them with you. Um, you can find me at booth 1521. I'm in the aisle where the huge um, giant booth of dice is. If you want to pick up some beach mm -hmm. for yourself, there's more four sets. But I, um, I'm there, FG Lucas is also there, and I'm on a panel tomorrow, 1 p.m. in Marriott. Um, LGBTQIA in, in young adult fiction, and I'm, at 4 p.m. I'm back here with Apocalypse Chat. We're talking about the importance of non-romantic relationships, and that's at 4 p.m. here in this room. Uh, no, it's in the other Chastain. Yeah. Chastain H. Yeah. Um, and then on um, Sunday, I'm on a panel in the Hyatt at 2:30, and that's um, gender and sexuality and right. I'll just add real quickly, I publisher sent a few extra copies of issue one, A Great Divide. I've got about 10 or 15 left, which I'm happy to give to folks if they want them. It's not enough for everybody in here, sorry, but if there's somebody interested, I've, like I said, I've got a couple free extra issues. Um, so, and, and by the way, guys, don't forget, uh, if you enjoyed the panel, please rate us in the app. If you didn't enjoy the panel, uh, don't. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and also, please don't forget, uh, the charity this year is Literacy Action. It's um, an Atlanta-based uh, literacy movement. Um, and they are taking book donations at the Hilton. I think it's on the third floor. So like, if you have books that you don't want, um, you can drop them off there. And uh, obviously, DragonCon is still matching um, monetary donations uh, up to $100,000. So 
before the end of the weekend at some point maybe uh throw a few bucks or a few books in uh for the this year's charity i i, I really like this this year's charity i'm yeah. really excited about it so great. thank you guys so much for coming you've been a great audience <laughs> Thank you for listening to Tara Lynn's A Geek Saga podcast. If you like what you heard, please check out my website, ageeksaga.com, or consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com backslash ageeksaga.